into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin, lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Hello and welcome everyone to Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. I'm your host, Robbie Thompson, back again, and we have a packed show for you today. It's been an exciting start to the season, two rounds in already, and we're seeing plenty of attacking play, spectacular goals, and some of the big-name transfers are already strutting their stuff. It's AS Monaco from down south who are withstanding the heat with two wins from two to top the standings, thanks in large part to a certain Takumi Minamino. And we'll be taking a look at two of Ligue rising sons, Bumtish, later in the programme. While PSG sit in the bottom half of the table after successive draws under new coach Luis Enrique, they now have Kylian Mbappe back on board, or will he be for the whole campaign? We still wait on tenderhooks to see the outcome of that before the end of the transfer window. And we'll be looking ahead to their impending round three clash with last season's bogey side Lens before they tackle Olympic Lyonnais. On top of that, we'll travel back in time with our brand new Ligue 1 Legends segment with our resident professor, Andreas Evagora bringing us the incredible story of Racing Club de Lens's Ligue 1 title win way back in 1998. They beat Metz on goal difference. So to pour over all the details and draw stunningly astute conclusions while keeping up the rate of bold predictions, I'm joined by Ligue 1 aficionados, Andreas Evagora, of course, and Luke Entwistle. Andreas? How's your summer been? And welcome back. Thanks. It was great. I was in uh, Cyprus and Greece, and I happened to be in uh, Athens for the Panathinaikos Marseille game just by complete fluke. I wasn't actually at the stadium, but I watched it uh, in a bar in, in Monastiraki. And um, to great, uh, the great joy of the Greeks, they beat Marseille. So it's been a good summer. Only just, only just, and a little bit controversial, the, the, the Marseille would have you believe. Luke Entwistle. You are withstanding the heat. It's doing Monaco uh, no problem at the moment. How are you coping? Yeah, not as well as Monaco, clearly. I mean, uh, these 35-degree days, 30-degree nights aren't, aren't too good for a, a man from the north of England. But the summer's been good. Uh, got to Japan, unlike Kylian Mbappe, took his, you know, took his seat on the plane to, to Tokyo uh, and had a lovely time there where it was equally as hot. So it's been a hot summer and looking forward to the end of the window, September, slightly cooler airs. It's going to be Fantastic. Good. Well, the team is in place. All we're missing are you. So a big thanks to you for joining us on whichever platform you are listening to us on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and recommend. You can check out the official League One website, imaginatively named League1. Com. You can find that easily enough. And on Twitter, we're at League One underscore ENG for English. So get involved with the conversation. Well, let's start with a look back, gentlemen, at the first two rounds of the season. I'm not sure there were many people, despite uh, always these early days in French football where you don't know what's going to happen in the first few weeks of the season. But uh, 
How many people were expecting Monaco and Brest to be sitting top of the table? Andreas, we'll start with you. What's been your standout performance so far in the first two weeks of the campaign? Uh, well, no, I certainly wasn't expecting Monaco and Brest to be top, although Eric Wad did a brilliant job last year. And he, he's a real wily character, been out of the game for a long time, but, but he's back and doing a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I, I was looking, I actually did the, the League on Highlight show on Sunday, and one thing that did stand out was um, Lava. We haven't talked too much about that final team, but Dala Kuzayev, who they bought a Russian, uh, very experienced player. Apparently a lot of other clubs are after him, and um, they really tried to sweet talk him, bring him over to a lovely part of the world. I'm a bit of a Normandy fan myself, as you know. I uh, sent him lots of videos of things you can do. It's a great place for the kids, all that stuff. And it, it is a risk to buy a Russian player at the moment. You know, we, we can't avoid that. Um, players work, you know, in, in a political and a, and, a, and, a, and a cultural landscape. And bringing a Russian player over, it's, it's a risk. They did it. His strike, Robbie, was a thing of beauty. It was a brilliant strike. Unfortunately, it was in a 2-1 defeat. But that really stands out, and it looked like a fantastic atmosphere at the Stade Orsien there. They haven't played a home game in Liga, I think, for about 15-odd years, 14 years. So um, that's something to look out for, see how Lavre will do and how the new Russian international does. Fantastic. It's a great little stadium. I've been there a few times over the last few years, more for the, the French women's national team, which uh, is a regular in that part of the world while we were, while we were missing out in Liga. Luke Entwistle. What has uh, caught your eye in this opening two rounds of the season? I mean, apart from the obvious answer, which is, is Monaco, you know, seven goals in two games. I, th- I think Ren have been the standout in that first game week of the season against Mets. I mean, there was a lot promised of Ren last season. They didn't deliver. They've got the most talented, you know, the largest depth up front in attack. It's a great attacking arsenal they've got at their disposal, but it wasn't maybe properly utilised last year. But against Mets, I thought they were absolutely sensational. Brought down to earth a little bit against Lons, but I don't think there's any shame in going to the ball art and coming away with a point. So I think they're kind of alongside Monaco. I think they're the ones to keep an eye on uh, at the start of the season. And with PSG's form, you know, you might start looking at other teams like Curens and saying, can they challenge PSG for the title this season? Well, in, uh, apart from the top two, which have won two from two, there are a number of undefeated sides, some that have impressed like Ren with their massive opening day victory and then a uh, well, a, a come from behind, 1-1 with Lens. Montpellier, they stunned Lyon in the second game of the season in week two as well. Lille and Marseille, and perhaps a little surprise, Toulouse, who we were talking in the preview show for what to expect from Toulouse coming into this campaign with uh, a new coach and a, a raft of changes to their playing squad. And they are there as well after a 2-1 defeat of Nantes on the opening day of the campaign as well. They followed that up with a 1-1 draw at home to Paris Saint-Germain, of course. Andreas, you keep a close eye on Paris Saint-Germain, as do most people in France. It's sometimes hard to avoid. Before we chat about the fact that they've drawn their opening two, have scored one goal in 180 minutes, or these days that we're going to have to start talking about 100 minutes per match in, in 200 minutes, and that was a penalty... But Kylian Mbappe, we thought he was going to stay. We thought there's a new offer on the table from PSG. They've done a little bit to try and uh, pour some water over the embers of that that incredible saga. But I woke up this morning, or rather I logged on this afternoon here in Australia and saw that the latest news is in in the rumour mill 
is that Real Madrid are back in big time for Killian once again. They're running out of time. They've got about eight days left to try and get this one across the line. Yeah, well, we've seen this go, excuse me, so many ways, haven't we? Is, is he going to? Is he going to go? Is he going to start? I mean, just to 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 bring the uh, viewers up to date, what happened was uh, Kylian Mbappe <clears throat> announced a few months ago now that he was not going to extend the contract from 24 to 25. So that means that uh, he'd be a free agent in 24. PSG went absolutely crazy. Like this cannot happen. They said we will not let Kylian Mbappe, the best player in the world, go for nothing. Uh, Mbappe just said, "Look, I'm going to." fulfill my contract and I want to play for PSG. As usual, he did the media thing superbly. He said, I'm a PSG player. I'm going to give everything. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, we had this strange news. Uh, it was just after Kylian Mbappe was um, seen watching the match, the first match against Lorient. He was at the Parc des Princes. And suddenly there's been this uh, rapprochement. And the idea is that both sides would be happy, implying that Mbappe would, would leave next year. He would get a fee for PSG and he would extend the contract. The whole thing is is kind of crazy. I've actually got a friend of mine who's a contract lawyer who's infinitely more intelligent than me and he doesn't understand it. I try to explain it, but in football, you have a contract that neither side wants to respect. And it's like, well, this just, how does it work? But that's actually the case. So where, where we stand is Mbappe is a PSG player. He should stay... He'll sign for two years, but leave after one. But, you know, as you said, Robbie, who knows? Maybe another club will come in. There was uh, a bid from Saudi Arabia of I don't know how much, about a quarter of a billion, something like that, that he turned down. But this morning, as you were saying, there's rumours that maybe Real Madrid think, well, we do want him this year. So that would mean Kylian Mbappe not extending his contract. You know, only him and his, his entourage know, and we're not going to know till till the 1st of September. But uh, getting back to the football, when he played, he came on within 10 minutes. He won a penalty, he scored a penalty. PSG really did need him. I would say that I think Dembele was outstanding. And I'm a little bit less worried than some, because I think if Mbappe and Dembele are both fit, both playing, they're going to cause havoc, Robbie. And they're going to score so many goals, I still think they'll lead PSG to the title. But as for Mbappe, well, let's just see. We'll have to wait a few more days. But uh, he was on, and he celebrated that goal like he was... You know, really in it for the long term. He, you know, he's when he gets on that pitch, he's serious. No one can doubt that. He was, he was, uh, you know, arguing about decisions. He was when when Toulouse got the penalty. He was kind of trying to delay things and 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 be a bit clever. Um, so when he plays, he's a hundred percent. But whether he'll be there in ten days, we'll just have to wait and see. Okay. Well, a quick look at the table after two games of the season then means that it is Monaco on top, courtesy of goal difference, ahead of Stade Brestois. Then come Rennes, Montpellier, Lille, Marseille and Toulouse. Reims are there with three points from six. PSG are currently in 11th in the bottom half of the table without a win after their two opening matches. Lens, they have just one point to show for their opening two games of the season. And the first one of those against Brest, let's not forget they were losing. They were winning 2-0, by the way, as well as... uh, being right in the hunt with Wren as well. In the bottom three, now this year, it's an 18-league competition, 18-team competition, and 17th and 18th will be automatically relegated. There are three sides without a single point so far this campaign. Nantes sit above the automatic relegation zone in the playoff position in 16th place. Olympic Lyonnais are there with Clermont Foot in the bottom two. And poor old Laurent Blanc, well, 
that that's another of the big talking points. And we're going to chat uh, Olympic Lyonnais in the coming weeks. But but Luke, after that four-one loss uh, where they finished with ten against Montpellier at the weekend. Laurent Blanc was asked the question, and he rather facetiously, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I suspect, uh, replied to the journalist, well, perhaps the club needs to change the coach. Now, yeah. you don't often find a I've coach a who are notoriously <laughs> very hard to move and dig in and do anything to save their skin and hold on to their jobs, suggesting that perhaps the club needs to change coach. Where's that coming from? What's that all about? Well, I, th- I think it's a bit of frustration spilling over from the whole summer. Uh, I mean, this this has precedent. I mean, it was even before the first match of the season, before a ball had even been kicked, he was already joking that he was out the door. Uh, he said after a pre-season friendly, it was even more tongue-in-cheek then. It was a lot more sarcastic, and it was directed at a keep journalist who the report had, had, had risen in the keep saying that he was maybe going to be going at the start of the season. Um, this one felt a little bit more somber in tone, and he seemed a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more resigned than last time, I'd say. Um, I think that he knows he's in trouble. He doesn't want to resign. Why would he resign? He's got a contract there and, you know, he's got a talented bunch of players and maybe, you know, he's got confidence in his own ability to turn the situation around. But in the post-match press conference following that interview, he was talking a lot about uh, how they didn't get their transfer window sorted, how they're under surveillance from the... France football watchdog as well and how that is really just affecting their preparations and affecting their start of the season. So I think it's an accumulation of frustration at the club situation, um, which which hasn't been ideal. It's not a perfect setup to a season. And uh, I think that's all spilling over a little bit. We'll see how long he remains in that job, but it seems clear that he doesn't want to resign. And, and as I say, why would you when you've got players like Ryan Shirky, uh, Bradley Barcola and Alexander Lacazette up front? For the moment. For the moment, you have those players up front because <laughs> there is still eight days left in the transfer window. Yeah, the, a lot of people also pointing to the fact that Olympic Lyonnais probably don't have any room to manoeuvre as well. And Laurent Blanc knows perfectly well they can't sack him because they can't pay his damages or bring anyone else in either. So, But it's a strange, strange atmosphere there at Group Armour Stadium. Gentlemen, it's the moment you've been dreading. It's the time for your bold prediction. We'll go through this rapidly because we've got a big show and lots to get through. Ligue 1 Uber Eats champion. We asked the guys on the panel last week, Andy and JJ, who is going to win the title? Andreas, in one word, or depending how many words in the name of the team, who's going to win? Uh, three words. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain. If you want a surprise, though, because I think that's what you want, um, I think Lille might do better than people think and better than their fifth place last year. So PSG to win, Lille on the podium. Fantastic. Luke, what about you? Yeah, once again, nobody wants the answer PSG, but that is the most likely scenario. Um, another team I mentioned, Stad Rene. Uh, so two words. I think they have a decent chance if they can keep most of their players around. Um, that is the the more bold prediction. And Lille's an interesting shout by Andreas. I mean, last season, statistically, looking at the stats and and how they ended the season. They should have finished higher than they actually did. One more season on the pile of Fonseca. I think that Lille on the podium isn't too wild. Golden a Boot. What do you think? We had uh, Baptiste Renault suggest that it might be Amin Guiri that got up for the Golden Boot. Uh, Luke, you can keep going. What do you, who do you think is going to put the ball in the back of the net more than anyone else? Not killing Mbappe. I think that's the first time 
in, in many years that I think you can say that. I think there's too much uncertainty, not only around his future at the club, but also Luis Enrique's style, which maybe won't necessarily work to his all of his strengths, I should say. Um, let's see how, say, Martin Terrier comes back from his huge injury, because he was on fire prior to that. He should be back in apparently a couple of weeks, so other side of the international break. Let's see if he hits the ground running, but there's usual candidates of Wissam Ben Yedder. Um, I think Aubameyang could also get quite a few this season. I think there's, there's expectations that Marseille have had a poor start to the season, but that they will get going quite soon. And if they do, I think Aubameyang should score plenty. Well, I think four points out of six isn't too bad. Paris Saint-Germain fans would take that as well, but I know what you mean. It's always hard to hard to please a Marseille supporter if, uh, if things are not going swimmingly. Andreas Golden Boot, who do you see top goal scorer this season? Well, I, I wouldn't rule out uh, Mbappe if he stays. I mean, there's two obvious names. I think Ellie Way will score a bunch of goals up at Lons. Jonathan David, if he stays. But I, I agree, actually, with Luke um, on Wren. Maybe Arno Calamwendo, if he plays a lot. I, I think he played up front, didn't he, centre-forward at, at the weekend. Aguirre, I think, he's a fantastic player as well. But if, if he plays a lot uh, through the middle, I think, yeah, Calamwendo could score a lot of goals. Um... But, yeah, I don't see it being a big surprise. I mean, if, that, if David stays, and surely he'll score, score a bunch of goals. So uh, I think that'd be my main candidates. Well, I suggested it might be Alexandre Lacazette, but seeing how Leon have started and the fact that he'll be missing this weekend as well coming, uh, I'm not already starting to regret that one. Relegation. Who's going down, Andreas? One team only. Let's not uh, bury everyone. <clears throat> I heard the discussion about Nantes last week. I agree. I think Nantes are going to have a really tough time. And I, I commentated them on the weekend and, and the halftime and post-match talks were really depressing. It was like, we're just going to scrap for every point we can get. It's like, come on, it's match day two in August. Uh, I think Nantes will just about stay up because I think they've got some campaigners that could just about get them over the line. Uh, although the management is, you know, all over the place. Um, I think Clermont will not have the season they had last year. And I'm not sure about Mets either. So if you want to pick a surprise, because Clement were on the table last year, I, I think they'll be in trouble this season. Luke, the kiss of death, who's it for? I think that a Mets side without George Mikotadze is quite a worrying prospect and for them, uh, not for the rest of Liga. I think that if, if they do lose him between now and the end of the window, I'd almost consign them to relegation. If they keep him, I think they'll have a fighting chance. Uh, in terms of a surprise, um, Lorient potentially could be a surprise. He looked very solid defensively, but how isolated Bon Bidiang looks up front is a bit worrying in the fact that they just can't seem to create any chances. I think that's a bit of a red flag this early in the season. Uh, I had them finishing kind of mid-table again, but there's a lot of un- well, the was a lot of unrest, I should say, prior to the season between like, Ferry and, and, and Reggie Slivery, and that seemed resolved. But um, yeah, they could be in for a bit of a difficult campaign if they can't find any kind of attacking fluidity and get Roman Fevre and, and Bombay Dieng into the game more because those are your two huge assets and you need to be really um, making the most out of them because you can't draw every game of the season and expect to, and expect to stay up. But yeah, Mets... Um, are probably, for me, the, the favourites to go down, but there could be a couple of surprise packages in there as well. Okay, now, as you know, this year's podcast is a bi-monthly. We're going to have lots of features to chat about, and we're starting now with our second episode and a look at what's been happening in the opening two weeks of the season. We're going to jump in to our first feature. It's Samurai Time. We're going to have a look at the impact of the Japanese players at the start of this season and a little, well, a little touchback 
in history because 15 Japanese players have graced the league on stage. It all started back in 2003 with Nozomi Hiroyama. It also included the likes of Daisuke Matsui, who was at Le Mans in 2005 and a personal favourite of mine. He went on to play for Saint-Étienne, Grenoble and Dijon. There was Yunicho Inamoto, who, uh, of course, made the headlines when he signed for Arsenal in England. He played with Rennes in 2009. And more recently, catching the headlines, we had Iroki Sakai and his five seasons at Olympic de Marseille. Nine Japanese players have played in Ligue 1 in the last three years, and four of them are currently there with Keito Nakamura at Reims and Nigerian-Japanese Ado Anaiwu at Toulouse. But perhaps most impressively at the start of this season has been Takumi Minamino, as well as Junya Ito. And they have really been catching the eye at Monaco and Reims, respectively. It's those two that we're going to have a closer look at now. Now, just to start, there's a little bit of trivia early. Takumi Minamino means Takumi, pave the way by yourself and success will come. Minamino means Southern Plain. So there you go. Takumi is 28 years of age. He's approaching 50 caps for his national team. And while his name is quite the tongue twister, he is the talk of the town in Ligue 1 after a stunning first two performances of the season have helped Monaco to top spot. He got two goals and two assists in two matches so far. And uh, he's ready to live up to all the expectations that have been surrounding him for a number of years now that have followed him in his career since leaving Japan. It was a much vaunted prospect when he signed for Liverpool after five years in Austria with Salzburg, where he won the League and Cup double five times, while also cooking up goals for a certain Erling Haaland for half a season there. Minamino struggled for game time on Merseyside, though, and after a loan spell with Southampton, he returned to Liverpool and shone in the Cups. But just when it looked as though things might open up for him, he opted for a move to Monaco the following season to revive his fortunes. And it was during his first season in the Principality that he started to feel things were coming together. Speaking to our very own Luke Entwistle and uh, available on Monaco Life's website, he said, My communication's getting better. At the start, it was tough because it's always difficult when you move country a different league, a different language, but now things have improved and I'm feeling good. That was just on the verge of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, where Minamino helped Samurai Blue to get out of the group of death featuring Spain and Germany, and they got into the last 16. Now, he can play anywhere across the forward line. He's a huge fan of Fernando Torres and David Villa when he was growing up. And he actually top scored for Liverpool in their victorious FA Cup and Carabao Cup campaigns in that 2021-22 season. He scored seven goals, providing one assist. Now, Minamino's first two outings this season certainly had something dreamlike about them. His relatively meek showings last term were certainly put to shadow. The French football fans are finally getting to see what all the excitement was about. His direct play, sharp finishing from the softly spoken playmaker have really caught the eye, particularly last weekend when he won the ball back and let fly with a stunning strike from distance that caught out Matt Sels and then a really clinical striker's finish to nod home Caio Enrique's cross from the left. He's also clearly enjoying being reunited with new Monaco coach Adi Hurta, 
who, of course, was his former coach at Salzburg. And he has got the 28-year-old looking back to his best if Monaco are to mix it with the big boys this season. Minamino may just be the player to fire them to success. The second player we're looking at is Junya Ito at Stade de Reims. Now, his name means Junya, pure or clean, and Ito means bread. So there you go. He's got 45 caps and 10 goals for Japan. And uh, he's the only one in uh, the current Japanese crop of four players that play uh, in Liga that never played for Japan at youth level. He was rejected by Yokohama F. Marinos youth system because he was too small. And uh, he followed the traditional yet less and less prevalent path to professional football in Japan, a little bit similar to the U.S. system. You play for your high school and then you go to university. More and more Japanese players are now going into newer football academies or even coming to Europe right from the start as teenagers as well. Many young Japanese teenagers in Spanish football, for example. But he went to university and uh, had to wait until he was 22 years of age after a chance encounter with a scout that led to him signing for Ventfore Kofu in Japan. Four seasons later, he was in Genk in Belgium, initially on loan, and then for another two years where he racked up eight goals and 15 assists in his first full season. He then pushed for a move to a higher level league, as he called it, and proved invaluable in Champagne country as Will Stillside shocked everyone with a stellar unbeaten run of 19 matches, including nine wins last season that lifted them off the bottom and to 11th place. He netted six goals along the way. Now, Japanese journalists were suspicious or, or perhaps uh, sceptical of uh, how Ito would go in France. They thought it would be too physical, Ligue 1, but the winger has let his secret slip in an interview after Rance beat Leon last season. He said, it's all about my first touch and balance. Size doesn't matter. So there you hear it from Junior Ito. He missed just three league outings in all of last season. Two of those were for a red card he picked up against Trois after setting up Foller and Balogun and scoring himself in that game. And he played a key role, pace, tactical nous, composure, and, of course, those crosses from the right wing. Now, he is ambidextrous as well, which meaning he can cross happily on the right foot getting down to the byline, but it can also cut inside and shoot with the left boot. That total of six goals and five assists last season also contained an inspired performance against Toulouse. He opened the scoring with a composed finish past Maxime Dupe before teeing up Marcel Munetzi and Yunus Abdulhamed for a 3-0 win. And he's also been shining on the international stage, just like Minamino, who uh, starred in the World Cup as well. So did Ito. He played a big role in both goals as uh, Japan knocked off Luis Enrique's Spain 2-1 to top their group back then as they progressed to the last 16. They ended up being beaten by eventual semi-finalist Croatia, but uh, Samurai Blue were one of the big revelations of that tournament, of course. And Junior Ito, well, France saw that they had a quality player in their locker room. Now, Will Still has used him mostly as a winger, but he is happy to play anywhere across the front line or in the middle, even as a lone striker. And he also played all up and down the right flank, wing back, right back, right winger for the Japanese national team as well. Basically, he said, I can play any position 
where I've played before. I was told by a Japan coach at the time that I might be even able to play in a front two. I haven't done it yet, but uh, only time will tell. Wherever you put me to play, I will play. Well, he too was superb. He scored on the opening day of the campaign. He provided a wonderful assist for Rance's second goal on the weekend as well and should have had a second assist really in setting up a Marshall Munetzi as well in that game. But Ito has shown last season he's one to keep an eye on. Luke, we'll start with Takumi Minamino, of course, because he is your man down in Monaco. Is this the season with Hurtler, the new coach, to take him to another level and perhaps see Monaco as one of those surprises in the in the in the European battle? Yeah, I mean Taki is the kind of all call him, all the teammates call him down there, even even Eddie. They they expected a lot of him down in Monaco last season because at Liverpool, especially on his loan at Southampton, he showed great promise. Whenever he came into the team, he played well, he scored. That loan period at Southampton, it was only six months, but he was astonishing throughout that. And, you know, he really hit a purple patch of form that, of course, he couldn't replicate at Liverpool because they he couldn't displace that that front three. And, you know, other players have tried and failed to displace that front three that, of course, has now been disbanded with Firmino and, and, and Mane going. But he came in and he just didn't hit the ground running. I think there were a few worries about his fitness when he arrived. Was he completely match fit? Did he have a little niggle? And then I feel as though his, his confidence just got knocked and he just couldn't build it back. He then lost his place. I mean, we were speaking about the World Cup and he lost his spot in the in the Sarsen 11. Um, he didn't really regain that throughout the World Cup and he was more used as, you know, on the bench, whereas before he was the star player in this Japan side. Uh, so there's disappointment, of course, naturally, 50 million pound player comes to Ligue 1, only scores one goal in his debut season in Ligue 1. And after that goal, there, there wasn't that kind of push on, OK, you've got this goal now, push on. But I think there was, and there definitely was internal optimism that he would bounce back this season. You know, they said, you know, this is a season of adaptation. He looks completely different when you see him around the place now. He looks so much more confident and it's very, you know, anecdotal. But against Strasbourg at the weekend, you know, he was actually screaming for a ball to be played through to him that didn't get played through, I think, is by Fafana. Last year, you know, that ball doesn't come. He doesn't say anything. He kind of, his shoulders go down. He just looks disappointed. But he just seems to be more confident in his surroundings and, and more willing to kind of shout for the ball. And he looks completely different. I mean, he's worked with Adi Huta once. I think it was only for about six months at Red Bull Salzburg. But I think that element of familiarity in, you know, a place that you're, you know, still adapting to it. It's a very different culture for, for Takumi to, to adapt to. And that adaptation doesn't take just a couple of months. You know, it does take potentially sometimes a couple of years. So I think that having Adi Huta there is good. I think that he's getting to know still his teammates even better. And you know, that performance against Strasbourg, uh, the two goals, the first one was nothing like what we've seen from Minamino during his time at Monaco. And the assist as well, I mean, that's two assists in two games. The first one was against Clermont. Uh, just completely different. I think the system is suiting him. He's playing more off a front striker alongside another playmaker element in, in Golovin. So he's sitting a little bit narrower. He's closer to those players as well. And he's feeding off those little interchanges. So I think there's a, there's a tactical level. There's also the psychological aspect. But he just looks completely reborn under Huta. And it, you know, it's nice to see him... Uh, with confidence again, because that's when he has been at his best, when he's shown his best form. And I think that he can really drive them on. You know, if he can get double figures for goals, maybe even double figures for assists, I mean, that, that's a long way 
that's that's a lot of output for an attacking player. And we're talking about them maybe pushing on and and challenging for the title even. Um, and if they are, then he could be a key player uh, towards facilitating that push. Andreas Junior Ito, he's a very different type of player to to Minamino. For me, he's more of your Daisuke Matsui type. If you cast your mind back uh, 15 odd years to that little similar physical stature, very tricky winger, maybe more of an eye for goal. What's your uh, appraisal of him? Oh, I was very impressed with him and he, he fits into a system. And I think what you've talked about of, of fitting into the right system at the right time is really important because if, I, I've been lucky enough to go to quite a few countries uh, in my career. And I've got to say Japan is probably the most different from Europe. I mean, it really is such a different culture. Um, and to come to Europe, you do need to fit into a completely different system. I, I remember Arsene Wenger saying when he went over to Japan, um, his first game, he was in the, the dressing room at halftime. And, you know, normally halftime dressing rooms, there's people, lots of banter, lots of people shouting. He went in, it was silence, you know, a, a Japanese a Japanese dressing room at halftime. And he was like, what's wrong here? Is someone ill? And, but Japanese players do have a different way of uh, fitting into a group and a structure. And I think there is a certain uh, stereotype, because I was thinking all the players you mentioned, they tend to be fast, not the biggest attacking midfielders, dynamic um, which is great, but I'm wondering if there's probably a completely different set of profiles out there of Japanese players. Maybe there's some great goalkeepers and big centre-backs, but that, that's for another time. Um, I do think also it's important to remember there is a lot of pressure on these Japanese players because the press, uh, the Japanese press is actually huge here. I remember when uh, Inamoto went to Arsenal, uh, they were saying that they've never had so many uh, press accreditation requests for a reserve game because he never actually paid for Arsenal, but there were hundreds of Japanese journalists would turn up looking to see him. So getting getting back to um, league and players, uh, it's great to see Minamana. He's he's obviously in a structure he likes. He's with a coach that he likes. Um, Brilliant performance at the weekend. Uh, And this is, uh, it's a European phenomenon, isn't it? Because uh, there's Karo Mitoma in, in England with Brighton who scored a fantastic goal at the weekend. And I saw that he did his, university thesis on dribbling in football. I don't know if you saw that. That that was the subject of his university thesis. I had a quick look at it last night, and it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's quite a read. It's worth looking at, but it, that's another thing. Japanese players do uh, seem to think a lot about football. They do analyse their football. They tend to be on the intelligent side. So without falling into stereotypes, you know, um, there surely is a good future and plenty more players, but maybe they need a little bit more time and a little bit more of a, an arm over the shoulder and understanding than than, than other players. But um, certainly good times for, for Japanese players in, in France and across Europe. Well, we have seen, I mean, countries historically have, have had easier pathways between other areas of the world, haven't they? France obviously has, has its links to historically to Africa, many areas of Africa. But we have seen Particularly in Germany, the Bundesliga was one that went in early for, for Japanese football and Korean football as well. We've got Lee Kang in now at, at PSG. We've got a, more and more Asian players coming through coming through the ranks. And and of course we've seen it on the on the on the international stage as well, that they are players that are that are well worthy. And we know if you look in Germany, we know there are big centre backs, Japanese and Korean centre backs and number sixes and solid solid defensive midfielders as well. Surely only a matter of time, of course, because we know French clubs, like every other club around the world, are looking for the next big thing. And uh, 
if they can make a little bit of coin out of a resale as well, well, why not go looking to uh, more exotic destinations perhaps for for players to bring them through as well. But certainly one to keep an eye on. And I think fans of Ligue 1 are loving the, the Japanese and Korean influence that we're seeing more and more in the French top flight. You are listening to Luke Entwistle, Andreas Evagora, and myself, Robbie Thompson, on Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 podcast in English. Don't forget to subscribe if you're listening to us wherever you got this podcast from. So it drops automatically into your inbox every two weeks that we do it, a bi-monthly this season. Follow us, rate us, and enjoy the podcast and French football, of course. Well, now it's time for another of our new features this season, and one that uh, Professor Andreas Evagora has been looking forward to, one that I'm certainly looking forward to, because uh, Luke Entwistle uh, is maybe too young to remember this, but this was a fantastic (laughs) era. Of, uh, of French football back in the late 90s. Luke, once upon a time, you may have heard this, France won the World Cup for the first time back in 1998 in a brand new stadium called the Stade de France. Enough, it was, uh, it was a truly that. remarkable event. Well, it wasn't only the national team because most people only remember Les Bleus. There was a vibrant, competitive French first division, full French footballing pyramid, and Andreas Evagora is going to turn back the clock and uh, take us back to the year that Lens won the league for the one and only time. And it was an incredible campaign from start to finish. The year is 1998. Andreas Evagora, over to you. Racing Club Lens have a fascinating background. With a population of just 35,000, the town is small. The club had not won a thing since being formed in 1906, but their fans are perhaps the most passionate in France. Nicknamed the Soyor, the Blood and Golds, Lens situated in one of the poorest regions of France, an area still reeling from the closures of its coal mining industry. Supporters from the area have followed the club through thick and mainly thin, but all that changed 25 years ago with an exciting team crafted by the unconventional and unforgettable Daniel Leclerc. 10th of May, 1998, Lens, Northern France. It's the middle of the night, but the Stade Félix Bollard is packed with delirious fans. Thousands more are celebrating on the streets outside. Lens have just won their first French league title after the closest finish in history. And the man who led them is Daniel Leclerc, a maverick coach unknown just one year earlier. A man dubbed the Druid. Approached by a TV crew on the pitch, Leclerc is close to tears. It's four o'clock in the morning and the stadium is full. This could only happen in Lens. One year earlier, May 1997, the boardroom at the Stade Félix Bollard. Club president Gervais Martel takes a worried look at the end-of-season league table. Lens are safe, but only just. Roger Lemaire has done just enough to keep his club in the top flight, but the coach has left to work with French coach Aimé Jacquet ahead of the Home World Cup. With fans concerned about another relegation battle, Lemaire needs to be replaced and replaced fast. Martel has rolled the dice and hired Leclerc. It's a massive risk. The 48-year-old is a Lens legend, having played more than 350 matches. He's never coached at the top level. 
Martel welcomes Leclerc to his office. The two men are like chalk and cheese. Martel is a successful businessman, suave, well-dressed. With his unkempt hair and craggy features, Leclerc looks like he could use a good night's sleep. He'll soon be dubbed the Druid by French media. Martel offers Leclerc a drink, tells him that the club can't afford another season in the bottom half of the table. Don't worry, says Leclerc. I'll win the league for you. Martel laughs off the joke and wonders whether he's made a terrible mistake. The 1997-98 season started well. A 3-0 victory against 1996 champions Auxerre, briefly putting the blood and gold top. For fun, fans cut out and kept copies of the nascent league table, knowing Lons wouldn't be top for long. And Lons did struggle early on. Just two wins saw them in the bottom half after seven games. Journalists and fans began to wonder, is the Druid the right man for the job? But Leclerc was building a side in his own adventurous image. Captain Jean-Guy Valem and Fred Dehou were rocks at the back. Cameroonian Mark Vivian Foe emerged as a powerful force in midfield. Lons pulled off the coup by signing the Czech star Vladimir Smisar after Euro 96. On taking the job, Leclerc begged Martel to buy the talented but unpredictable Stefan Ziani from Bordeaux. Then there was the shaggy-haired cult star Tony Varel, at times unstoppable on the flanks. And of course, every team needs goals. Martel's summer signing of Yugoslav striker Anton Drobenyak would prove a masterstroke. A virtual unknown before his appointment, Leclerc burst onto the scene with a swashbuckling style that won fans across France. This in an era of defensive tactics, the Druid truly a maverick. The 15th of November 1997, Stade Felix Bollard. Under a huge thunderstorm, Lens host Cannes in one of the craziest games in French league history. Drobignac had scored an August hat-trick in a famous 3-2 win at Marseille. He repeated the feat against Cannes in a memorable first 22 minutes. Lens went 4-0 ahead and the drenched fans were ecstatic. But at half-time, players were surprised. An angry-looking Leclerc came into the dressing room. Don't you dare lose me this match, he screamed. Nerves seemed to grip the team. Lowly Can scored three, then an own goal from Valem made it 4-4. But near the end, Ziani slotted home a penalty. The final score, 5-4. And Lens fans starting to believe that this season could turn into something special. 1997-98, a big season in France. Excitement building as the country prepared to host the World Cup. Monaco, Marseille, PSG and Bordeaux expected to tussle for the title, but Metz were top at halfway. Martel, meanwhile, delighted to be comfortable in sixth. The ambitious Druid wanted more. 29th of March, 1998, all eyes on the Stade Saint-Symphorien. Metz versus Lens, its first against second. Since the new year, Lens have been unstoppable. Before the trip east, they've beaten Bordeaux, Monaco and PSG without conceding a goal. An hour before the game, the Druid selects all his best attacking options. Smitha, Ziani, Varel and Drobignac tells them to take the game by the scruff of the neck. Deu and Foe order to dominate midfield and blunt the emerging star Robert Pires. Early on, Drobignac shakes off Marco Rigobert's song, launches himself at a Smitha cross. A stupendous header makes it 1-0. Five minutes later, Drobignac beats homekeeper Lionel Letizzi. It ends 2-0. Lens top for the first time since match day one. Two points clear, four games to play. 
the title is suddenly theirs to lose. The 9th of May, 1998, a hot sunny evening in Auxerre. It's the last day of the season and the most important in the history of racing club Lens. Lens lead Metz, who host Lyon by just two points. They have a six goal superior goal difference. Auxerre led by the legendary coach Guy Roux, who can boast three players who go on to win the World Cup that summer. In the run-up to the match, Roux urges his players to deny Lens the title. At kick-off, cameras turn to the Lens bench. The nervy, superstitious Martel crosses himself, looks to the heavens. 14 minutes gone, disaster for Lens. The outstanding Sabri Lamouchi scores a cracker from distance. 1-0 for Auxerre. Within seconds, Bruno Rodriguez has opened the scoring for Metz. As it stands, Metz are champions. Then a twist. Auxerre keeper Lionel Charbonnier is in agony with injury. Perhaps fearing for his place at the upcoming World Cup, he's in tears as he limps off. The tension palpable at the Stade L'Abbé de Champ. Lens need a goal. At the other end, keeper Fabien Kuhl tips a header from Foe onto the bar. Then eight minutes into the second half, a Lens goal from the most unlikely source. Defender Johan Lachaud equalising to write himself into Lens legend. 1-0, a point would be enough to clinch the title. The closing minutes unbearable for the travelling fans. One Auxerre would deny the Druid the title, but Lens hung on. Wild celebrations at the end as the blood and goals clinch the title on goal difference. Celebrating with the Druid and his players, an overcome Martel is live on TV. He sends a message to Lons fans back in the north. Get ready for us, we're coming home. And get ready they did. Celebrations running through the night and the next day. Around 70,000 people, twice the population of the town, line the streets to celebrate the biggest day in the club's history. Martel's bet had paid off. The Druid had performed the unthinkable and landed the title for Lens. So, 25 years on, what happened to the stars of that unforgettable season? Fred Du went on to a successful career at Barcelona, PSG and Marseille, but never won another league title. Vladimir Smisser won the Champions League for Liverpool before returning to France for Bordeaux. Anton Drobignac quickly left Lens for Japan. He never quite hit the heights of that glorious season. Tony Varel made the wrong kinds of headlines this summer. He was sentenced to prison after a violent incident outside a Nancy nightclub. Marc Vivian Foe was a French champion again with Lyon in 2002. But tragedy struck the following year. He collapsed and died playing for Cameroon. Foe just 28 years old. And what of the Druids? Leclerc stunned French football by resigning less than six months after winning the League Cup in 1999. Fitting his enigmatic reputation, never again did he coach at the top level. Leclerc died in November 2019. He was living on the Caribbean island of Martinique, doing what he loved best, coaching kids to play with flair and passion, and just maybe write a little piece of their own football history. Fantastic, Andreas. Got me all excited there, the run-in to the, to, the, to the big moment. What a season that was. And just rattling off those names, I mean, this is a generation of, of players in French football. Like I said at the start, it wasn't only Les Bleus. These, these sides were competing at a high level in the Champions League every season. Uh, Lens had some fantastic matches. Mess were a great team. I think it was Kasten Deutsch, their, 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 their talismanic player in, in, in that season as well. But 
fantastic players all over the pitch. And um, what a tragedy, Mark Vivian Foe. I think most of us of our generation remember watching that Confederations Cup match in France um, when he when he passed away on on the pitch. That was an absolute tragedy. And Tony Varel, Ziani, the tricky little player, fantastic, fantastic. I even have a, a story of Jean Guy Wallem, who of course was Robbie Slater's best man at his wedding. The former Socceroo, of course, Robbie Slater, who played a couple of seasons. And uh, and Robbie Slater from Lens, who who stays in contact with him, fantastic stuff. We look forward to the next one, which I believe is going to be a look at another uh, fantastic season. This time for Olympic Lyonnais, and we all know that they had a a great run of seven consecutive league titles. But that first one didn't come easy. I think they actually won it over Lens, didn't they, on the last day of the season. If, if memory serves me correctly. But it, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to look back at some videos from, from 98 because it was real fun looking at those, those, up, those, those pictures. Um, and just a, a little anecdote, when uh, my, my daughter was born, the midwife actually used to work in Lons and she told me that the, the quietest days of the year were when Lons were playing at home uh, because the men just wouldn't take their wives to the hospital. And the busiest days were the day after uh, Lawrence played at home, so I'm not uh, I'm not recommending that for any uh, future fathers. But it is a part of the world, as you know very well, Robbie. They absolutely adore they adore their football, and it's a great place to watch uh, watch the game. That was Professor Andreas Evagora, our local Liga historian, and he'll be back in two weeks' time with another great story from the archives. Well, now it's time to welcome back. French football's most popular, likely toughest quiz, where you have the chance to win a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey every month just by using your own personal, incredible, in-depth knowledge of the league or perhaps a little bit of Google. Actually, about 18 months ago, had a had a contestant write in and show all his Excel sheets that he'd used to find out the answer of, of cross-referencing clubs and players You've got to find out who the player is we're talking about, put all the clues together, and then email us your answer if you think you know who it is. Now, as a reminder, Deja Who covers international footballers, all local Frenchies who have, who have caught the eye and have all plied their trade in Ligue 1 Uber Eats at some point. Now, if you answer either the Deja Who from the first pod of the season or this one, Correctly, you'll go into the running to be announced in our third pod, which is going to be recorded on the 6th of September to try and win that jersey. So after all of that preamble, I think we're ready. Here is the Deja Who from episode two of the season. Who am I? After completing university, I made my first division debut in my homeland at 22 years of age being named immediately in the team of the season in my debut year. After just two years, I moved to Europe, becoming the first person from my country to play in Serie A. Another two years later, my time in Italy came to a controversial end and even saw me leave Europe entirely, only to return three years later in Ligue 1, where I managed two goals in 16 appearances alongside Ludovic Obraniak and Frank Beria in my one and only season in France. After two more years in Europe and a second World Cup, I returned to my homeland 
where I became one of my country's most famous TV personalities. And when I say that, TV personality, it's not for being a pundit on a sports program talking about football. We're talking serious cabaret host, singing and dancing, big-time TV personality. So, who am I and what did I do with my first touch in Ligue 1? If you have the answer, or perhaps just think you might, send in your answers to League One Podcast. That's L-I-G-U-E, League, as in Ligue 1, podcast at gmail.com to go into the running for a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey. Luke, you're just about old enough. Any idea? No, I mean, that's, that's quite a wild trajectory that you just kind of described. Um, but I'm completely stumped by it. I should know that story, really. I mean, that, that sounds quite quite insane, really, the, the two in and fro. But this is not his biggest story. I've only hinted at the biggest story of this player, which doesn't really have a, a French link, but was massive. Andreas, any idea? I see you with a furrowed brow. It's that last thing that stumped me. A, a TV personality, nothing to do with sport. Is that right? Yep, that's absolutely right. Okay. Well, can you do better than Luke Entwistle or Andreas Evagora? If you think you can, league1podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget also to get involved in the League 1 conversation every week after the games or in previews at league1 underscore ENG on what was once known as Twitter. I'm not sure. What do we call that now? I don't even know. X? On X? X? Is it just X? X? Yeah. Cross? X, how strange. Well, that will take a little while to getting used to. All right, coming up in round three, we have an already mouth-watering clash between Paris Saint-Germain and the Racing Club de Lens. We've heard a lot about the history of Lens. We know Paris Saint-Germain's history as well has been written in recent series. Last year, there were a couple of real humdingers between these two sides. Franquez and Christophe Galtier exchanging 3-1 wins in this fixture for a while there, it looked as though Lens might even reel in the Capital Club in their race for the title. Luke Entwistle is now going to look ahead to this weekend's clash. And maybe, just maybe, if we twist his arm, he'll give us another bold prediction about what's going to happen. Luke, what can we, what awaits us this weekend in this massive match? That is, well, that is the question. I mean, we've got one vastly different side to the one we saw last season so going back to last season you alluded to those two results I mean the one in January you can defer a little bit more from the one in later in the season where PSG won a little less so because of Abdul Samed's very early red card kind of destroying destroying the flow essentially of that game it, it had great promise and Lance actually looked really positive in those opening exchanges but yeah that early red card in the first half really well it understandably knocked the wind out of the sails of Frank Hayes' side but that one at the Bullard on the 1st of January, you know, new year, new calendar year. And suddenly we thought there could be a bit of a title race. And Lons caused loads of problems for PSG that day. They were, you know, pressing them. They were also going long with their balls. Transitionally, Lons were absolutely formidable. But I think this is maybe a sign of, of you know, the weaknesses that could still exist within this PSG side. Because what you still have is great pressing from Lons. We saw that in against Brest in the first half, less so in the second half, but we saw it throughout the game against against Rennes. 
So Lance will continue to press and, well, essentially PSG have not yet been pressed. Skriniar has not been tested. None of that back line has really been tested. And that's how they got one of those goals in that victory. So I think that Lance's major way of, of getting a win or getting some kind of result is through that because I think that the transitional elements won't exist to the same extent. So what we saw for the first goal in particular was Lance just being afforded all the space they want in their own half and just being able to launch up long, no pressure on the ball, one touch, one ball, goal. I don't think we're going to see that kind of thing. That's not how Luis Enrique is on his team and, and PSG will control the game. So, I mean, looking at the stats from PSG this season has been, well, it's been quite insane, really. I mean, the, it's been a bit toothless. I think it, it's quite fair to say. But the possession stats have been quite incredible. I mean, in the first game, 1,001 passes. That's an up to record since they started taking data in 2006. They're averaging possession uh, 76.5%. Uh, I mean, having over three quarters of the possession in a game is uh, pretty much unheard of in Liga. And last season, they're only averaging about 60%. So I think what we can be expecting now is for PSG to control the game but also maybe to be caused issues through Lons' press. So I think that you're going to be having Ugarte in particular running the game in midfield, as well as the two centre-backs spraying passes out and, and, and keeping the game ticking in that, in that kind of sense, but not the kind of transitional chaos that we saw. And it's quite interesting to hear Luis Enrique speaking about the control that he wants his team to. And that's very much a sign of absurd. I mean, he, he says... You know, you want less control, I want more. You want less possession, I want more. So I think the way things are going to be. And, and when I was kind of looking at the two matchups against these two sides, I was kind of waiting to see um, how they looked in the second game because obviously a team with Kin Mbappe and Usman Dembele is very different to a side consisting of Asensio and the Kangin out, out, out wide, who are essentially more central players. But it's quite interesting to see that whilst both players did have a, a major impact on, on the outcome of that game against Toulouse, obviously Mbappe winning and converting a penalty, it's interesting to see already how they how they are adapting actually to, to Luis Enrique's style. I mean, the amount of times that I saw Mbappe cut back, you know, feed it back through and, and basically uh, get himself back out wide in order to stretch the play rather than go for that two versus one. He was always go for taking the man, getting to the byline, and trying to cut it back for someone or having to go himself. That's not what we're seeing. So actually, the equation with Mbappe and Dembele in that starting lineup actually isn't as drastically different as, as I personally would have expected. So I think that we're going to see a very controlled game, a very intriguing tactical battle, and Lance really trying to, well, stifle them, sit deep as you'd expect them to, because they were the strongest defensive side last season. Works your strengths. And, and I, I think that that would be their plan. And I think it could lead to a potentially low scoring game. But I mean, I think it depends on a couple of key battles within there. I think Ugarte hasn't been challenged, especially defensively. And I think that Andy Diouf also, you know, he's not yet shown what he can do, but there are great expectations. He is the Seco Fafana replacement and he will be expected to be a key element in well, being the creative outlet for this side. So I think that's that's a key battle to look out for there and how Bugatti gets on. I think that will be quite telling uh, for PSG season because they don't have too much strength and depth in that holding midfield position, especially if you do lose Marco Ratti, as is expected. Um, and I think there could be a couple of interesting battles between Medina, Reddy with Mbappe and Dembele, respectively. So that'll be interesting to see. And then the major wild card is Eli Wahi. We spoke about him earlier. Andres said he could be in there for the golden boot. Um, this game could be coming a little bit too early for him. I mean, he's only got 
13 league game minutes under his belt this season because of that uncertainty at Montpellier. So I think to expect him to come in, hit the ground running is, is quite unlikely, but he could be a wild card coming off the bench potentially. Well, it's great point. Andreas, you want to bounce off the back of that quickly? Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting analysis from Luke. And I'm interested in your, well, both, both of your thoughts on probably the most important player over the weekend. The PSG, or most significant, was Ashraf Hakimi because he, I thought he had a fantastic game and he gave away a penalty, a very silly penalty. But in the first half, um, he played right back, attacking right back. And in the second half, he went onto the left wing, uh, allowing Dembele to play on the right. And I know Enrique really likes to have a player very wide. But Dembele really was hugging the, the touchline. So I'm wondering, Luke, do you, do you think Hakimi is going to be playing right back or is, will he still be playing on the left? Or can you somehow get both of those two playing together because, you know, Hakimi does naturally like to get forward, doesn't he? It's going to be an interesting decision, isn't it, for Luis Enrique? Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's natural there. And I suppose Nuno Mendes is, is going to be the, the the first shot at the left-back position. But I think Hakimi will have to adapt considerably because what I know for Hakimi is, as you say, him attacking, but he's not an underlapping right-back. He is one that likes to hug the touchline and go and put in crosses. And Dembele... And it's also Luis Enrique's instructions as well. It's for him to stay out wide and to basically drag the play. And that's why you see Mbappe so wide as well. So essentially, I think he's going to potentially be asking for Hakimi to, over the long term at least, adapt his style of play. I think I'd expect to see him on the right and maybe sometimes filling in on the left. But I'd expect him to stay there. But for him to be gradually asked over the course of the season to just adapt and, and adapt to these new surroundings and, and adapt to Dembele, who is clearly a player that Enrique rates very, very highly. Big money spent to bring him in, knows him from, from Barca. It's, it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a big signing and he's going to clearly be a key element. And I think that Dembele's role and his strengths will be played to more than Hakimi's because he's the new sign and he's Enrique's man. So how Hakimi adapts is, is an interesting element to keep an eye on throughout the season. Talk about how this fixture could come too early for Eli Wahi, or at least Eli Wahi, to have a to to have a big influence on it. It's the interesting one about such a big fixture coming so early on the season, isn't it, Andreas? We we know that Paris Saint Germain and Lens are both winless, both need a, a win. So in that sense, it's a big game. But this was almost the title decider last season, and here we are, week three of the season. Then PSG have Lyon, and then in week six, and then I think it's Nice. And then Marseille. So it's a massive start to the season for a PSG. A lot of the other clubs have said we're starting the season with some big games. Everything's relative, I guess. But but is it a shame to see a, a PSG loss that was a title decider last year coming so early in the campaign? Yes and no, because uh, some people like to have a big match right at the start of the season. And some people like to um, uh, have a bit of a slow burner and have it in the end of September. I mean, this is a decision actually made by the TV companies. Uh, and there was a discussion there's always a discussion when to have PSG Marseille. Should you have it right at the start of the season? Should you have it at the end of September? And that will leave that to the TV executives. But in a way, it's a nice way to, to really get the season going. Uh, PSG certainly do have a tough start to the season. Um, I don't think they would have wanted these fixtures because they are adjusting to Luis Enrique's style, aren't they? Uh, and that will take time. But nevertheless, on paper, they do have the, strong, the, the strongest team in the country. They should be capable of winning those games. But, yeah, if they don't beat Lens, I expect them they should beat Lyon the week after that. But if they don't, yeah, there'll be huge pressure going into the, into the international break, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think for I think for Lance, I think this coming early in the season, I, I think is really important. I mean, you talk about them adapting to Luis Enrique's style of play, and I, I think that Luis Enrique adapting potentially to to league guys is actually going to be an interesting thing to watch because he said in the pre in the post match press conference after Toulouse that you know things won't change for now, but he's always been a very rigid juega de posición tick attacker twenty twelve. Spain, you know, that exact model of play and just keeping that keeping that going essentially. But it, it does feel as though, you know, pardoning the pun, that football has maybe passed him by a little bit. You know, this very slow build-up, constant passing, it, it feels as though it's not necessarily well-suited to league sides who just love to basically install a low, a low block and say, okay, you do that and we'll just watch you do that and maybe we'll get a turnover and catch you out. But um, seeing how, how he, Luis Enrique, that is, adapts to, to league if he does at all, will be something interesting to watch. Maybe not this week because this is a big match, but over the course of the season. I, I, I agree. I think the key thing for Luis Enrique is to get some unpredictability. He was up against another Spanish coach, originally Carlos Navarro, at, at the weekend. Uh, that both have a Barcelona background, and I just got the feeling that Navarro kind of knew what Luis Enrique ha- Enrique had up his sleeve. I actually was lucky enough to go to the last Luis Enrique match uh, when he was coaching Spain. At the World Cup, I was sat surrounded by Morocco fans, and I remember at the start they were very worried because Spain had the ball all the time. And by the end, they were kind of olaying it. They were quite happy for Spain to have the ball and take it into penalties. Now, I, as, you, as as Luke says, you know, league teams are very adapt tactically, and I do think it's important for Luis Enrique just to have that that bit of unpredictability in his side. He should be able to do it with players like Mbappe and Dembele, but he's got to do that against a very good Lens team. I'm going to have to cut you all short there, gentlemen, because we have to keep moving. We have to wrap up this podcast, but not before a personal moment of uh, indulgence on my behalf, because obviously, you know, I worked at Paris Saint-Germain for nine years. I saw every season Luis Enrique come in for Marco Verratti when he was at Barcelona and try and pry him away. Marco Verratti has played over 410 matches for Paris Saint-Germain. He's closing in on Jean-Marc Pilogé's all-time record of 435 matches. And it just is a tragedy to me to think that I think the latest reports now have Marco Verratti heading to a Qatari club, Al-Arabi. That's the latest rumours, having having, uh, the deal fallen through for Saudi. But to not have Marco Verratti, to not have a player of that quality, a European champion with, with Italy, without a doubt in my opinion, one of the greatest midfielders of his generation, the only remaining player at Paris Saint-Germain to have won the title back in 2013 uh, in that first season of, of, or second season of the Qatari era where Carlo Ancelotti won the league. Um, and it just seems such a shame that a player that was made to play for Luis Enrique, it's happened now at 30 years of age, and perhaps it's going to be Vitinha, who I think is a great player as well, that is playing that role when when it's a role made for Marco Verratti. This is purely personal. Having left the club two years ago, I just love Marco Verratti. And um, look, perhaps it would have been better for Marco Verratti looking back to have left Paris Saint-Germain when he had an opportunity five years ago. But uh, now he certainly appears to be on the outer at the club. Um, I'm not sure what Luis Enrique makes of him. He was always outspokenly a big fan. Pep Guardiola is outspokenly a big fan. These these people that understand football, which of course I align myself with, are big fans of Marco Verratti. And um, 
to think that he's going to be that close to becoming Paris Saint-Germain's all-time leading appearance maker and to miss out when it seems as though the styles could align for his style of play. Um, I just think it's a great tragedy. So there you go. So after previewing the big game this weekend of Paris Saint-Germain versus Lens, we're going to look ahead to what's coming up now. We've got two rounds to have a quick look at, so we're not going to do it match by match as in the old days. This weekend, Paris Saint-Germain versus Lens is the big one. The league leaders, Monaco, are away to Nantes. Brest are away to Olympique de Marseille. Montpellier, free scoring. Can they bounce back from losing Eli Wahi against Reims? That's going to be a big tactical clash as well. And Nice take on Olympique Lyonnais. And then in round four, we'll see how Brest and Monaco are still going. But Monaco have Lens, which promises to be a great clash. Montpellier are away to Lille as well. Uh, Marseille travel to Nantes, which is uh, one for the nostalgics amongst us, looking back at the, the good old days of French football as well. And it rounds out with Olympic Lyonnais against Paris Saint-Germain. My question to you, Andreas, is in two weeks' time, are we going to see Paris Saint-Germain back on the charge? Are AS Monaco and Brest still going to be sitting atop the tree? I think you can say yes to Maybe yes to both. I think PSG will get at least four points. I, I just think they, they will adapt to their new players and they'll settle down, they'll start winning. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if, if Monaco and Wren keep winning uh, as well, Brest there as well. But um, I'd probably say yes to both. I think PSG will get four to six points, but uh, not necessarily be top of the table going into that international break. And uh, we haven't talked perhaps enough about Brest, who started really well. And don't forget, Robbie, there's only 32 match days to go. So, you know, we're closing in on, on the running. <laughs> we're almost at the quarter mark of the, uh, <laughs> of the season as well. There I was thinking we could just e- ease our way into this campaign, but, but uh, Andreas Evagora not having it. Luke Entwistle, um, looking at this, we've got Leon who are without a point as well at the moment. They've got a tough couple of matches coming up with Nice and Paris Saint-Germain. What can we expect from then, and, and, and how else are you expecting sides to bounce back? So, I, I think the first game against Nice is the unpredictable game, I think just because Francesco Farioli hasn't yet built a system that he has been looking to instill. So, I, I still would back Nice on Leon's current form to get a result there, and I would be looking forward to seeing the the, the meltdown in the post-match press conference, if, if that so happens, and to, to hear the latest uh, kind of blonk ramblings as, as to the club's management and their transfer window and how the DSCG are preventing them from, from buying players. I think against um, I think against PSG, I think Andreas is right. I think that PSG will find their feet quite quickly under Luis Enrique, and, and when they do, I think that it will be quite difficult for a lot of teams. I wouldn't expect them to get anything against PSG. And I think that by the time the international window come, comes around, the international break, I think that Blanc could find himself out of a job if, if Lyon could find the money to, to move on from him. Uh, I saw that Bruno Large was obviously linked with, with the job and he would be coming very cheap because he's already within the John Textor Eagle football family. So that would be an interesting move. In terms of uh, the other results, I mean, obviously the Monaco Lance one has the feeling of, you know, an early battle for the podium. I feel as though both teams 
should be in contention for that. Um, I think that game it has the potential to be a very, very interesting one. I think it'll be very, very close. I, I think, you know, these two teams have um, played out some some great games over the past couple of years. I think notably back to the one on the final day, not of last season, but the season before where Lons in the 97th minute denied Monaco Champions League football. Um, so that was that was a great game and I expect some, some you know, more good football between those two sides. Uh, so that's that's where I'll be, I suppose, for the next couple of weeks. But yeah, watching Leon and their progression over the next couple of weeks uh, will be an interesting one because it's a little bit of a basket case at the minute. Plenty to look forward to over the next two weeks. And once you've seen all the action, join us back here on Le Beaujeu because we'll be back in two weeks' time to cast our eye over the next two rounds of Ligue 1 football and then look ahead to all the big matches Coming up, of course, that will be episode three in two weeks' time. Andreas Evagora will be back with his latest historical instalment. We'll look ahead to the rivalry between Paris Saint-Germain and Olympique de Marseille and also have a little player profile coming up as well. Maybe just going to have a look at who is Moussa Altamari, the Montpellier flyer, the Jordanian winger who got a double against Lyon at the weekend as well. I think there's an interesting character there that could do with unveiling. So, until then, on behalf of Andreas Evagora, Luke Entwistle, myself, Robbie Thompson, the whole Le Bourgeois team, not all of us are here today, but we will be back in the coming weeks. We wish you bon match, bon appétit, and we'll see you very, very soon. Bye-bye. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Play it again. The Marseille have the points.